I invite you now, loved ones, to turn in your Bibles to find the scripture passage this morning, which comes from Luke chapter 19, verses 28 to 44. You can find that in our Pew Bibles on page uh, 1631. A bit of introduction before we read the text today. As I already mentioned, we are celebrating the triumphant, triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem, God's city of peace. And this event marked the beginning of the end of Jesus' earthly ministry. When Jesus of Nazareth showed up that day with the crowd surrounding him, many hoped that he would be this great political leader. This seemed to be for them a political entrance to rally the people of Israel and lead them in revolt against Rome and its occupation of the Holy Land there. And many hoped that Jesus was on his way to defeat the Romans and set up a righteous, God-fearing society. But instead, we know the story. In less than a week, Jesus of Nazareth would die the most shameful death on a Roman cross. So in that day, many years ago, we we realized that people had their impression of who Jesus was. Many of the Jewish people gathered for that feast day in Jerusalem thinking that Jesus was just another revolutionary rabbi or perhaps the great prophet that Moses had long spoke about or even the Messiah himself, others thought. They wanted to see Jesus rise to that political prominence there and sit upon the throne of David. So there were those people that had that impression of Jesus. But there were other people, on the other hand, the religious leaders like the Pharisees that we'll soon hear about, they were much, very much opposed to Jesus and everything about him. His sway and influence over the common people challenged their own religious authority and power. And so they wanted to get rid of Jesus entirely. So we had those who were somewhat supportive and trying to understand him, others totally opposed, but then there were also the others, the Romans, who were basically indifferent about Jesus, the Gentiles, the nations, right? He was just, in their mind, another Jewish rabbi, possibly a rebel rouser. They wanted to just simply carry on with their lives. As long as Jesus didn't disrupt the peace of Rome, well, they didn't care that much. So on that day, as Jesus arrived, there were a variety of assumptions and preconceived notions about who Jesus was and what he was trying to accomplish in his ministry. And there are still today, still today, uh, those who have a variety of assumptions about Jesus. In fact, all of us think we know who Jesus was and is, and some of us are followers of Jesus, trying to understand more and more by faith who he is. Others are still haters of Jesus, opposing him, and many, many others are indifferent and could care much less, couldn't care less, right? Well, this early account for us, written by Luke that we're about to read, not only shows us what happened when Jesus arrived that day, but it also gives us a glimpse of the heart of Christ. It shows us who Jesus is. And so we will consider Jesus' calculated determination, 
his convicted devotion, and his compassionate disposition. So let's approach this passage as we read it now uh, with eyes to see Jesus more clearly in our hearts. So let us read now Luke 19, 28 to 44. This is the word of the Lord. After Jesus had said this, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. As he approached Bethpage and Bethany at the hill called Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there, which no one has ever ridden. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? Tell him, The Lord needs it. Those who were sent ahead went and found it just as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, Why are you untying the colt? They replied, The Lord needs it. They brought it to Jesus, threw their cloaks on the colt, and put Jesus on it. And he went along. As he went along, people spread their cloaks on the ground. When he came near the place where the road goes down the Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of disciples began joyfully to praise God in loud voices for all the miracles they had seen. Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to Jesus, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. As he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it and said if you even you had only known on this day what would bring you peace but now it is hidden from your eyes the days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment around you and encircle you and hem you in on every side they will dash you to the ground you and your children within your walls they will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. So far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Loved ones, in the first, in the first verses, 24 to 35, we see Jesus's calculated determination. What I mean is that Jesus planned his entrance in a calculated, detailed way, according to a predetermined plan. He already knew what he was doing and why he was doing it. He knew what his mission was. He knew how it was all supposed to go down to the very last detail. His betrayal, his arrest, and his death on the cross was not a trap that Jesus of Nazareth accidentally fell into. He was not so to speak, an unassuming lamb being led to the slaughter, unawares of the knife that would soon befall it. No, Jesus' calculated plan here reveals that he knew what he was doing and why. He sent these two disciples on ahead to get that young colt for that special task. And we find that Jesus had a calculated and detailed plan already in place. He was fulfilling prophecies of old. In particular, he was intentionally fulfilling the prophecy in Zechariah 9.9 that says, Rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See your king comes to you, righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, 
on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. And so, based on not only that text, but also other passages in the Old Testament, the young donkey was a symbol of Davidic lineage, the Davidic line and the kingship tied to it, but it also is a symbol of his humble heart, his lowly entrance. He didn't ride in on a war stallion. No, Jesus rode in on a small, tiny little donkey, about three to four feet high, right? And this was all according to his predetermined plan. But what was the plan for? What was he heading towards? Well, just before this event, in chapter 18, the chapter just prior, we read this. Jesus took the 12 disciples aside and told them, We are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written by the prophets about the Son of Man will be fulfilled. He will be delivered over to the Gentiles. They will mock him, insult him, and spit on him. They will flog him and kill him. On the third day, he will rise again. So Jesus clearly knew what he was getting into. He was intentionally headed towards his own death by the hands of the Roman Gentiles. Now the gospel writers all emphasize the fact that Jesus knew what he was getting himself into. He knew that he could, if he wanted to, he could have run away. He could have hid out and extended his life in ministry for many years, for many years teaching his disciples more things, but instead we find him going straight into the lion's den here because this was the plan. In John 10, we find Jesus saying this, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. For this reason, the Father loves me because I lay down my life that I might take it up again. No one takes it from me but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. So Jesus is saying that no one is going to take my life away from me. It is mine to lay down for my sheep. It is my plan, my intention to lay it down as a sacrifice for them in love. And so we find that Jesus did not in any way accidentally die. This charge he received from his father, and he was willing to lay it down on purpose. But again, that raises the question, what was the purpose in laying down his life in dying? Why did he choose to offer himself up in death? As I was meditating on this, I got to thinking, you know, this almost doesn't make any sense. He was a rising religious leader. He was only about 33 years old. His ministry as an itinerant rabbi, a teacher, was still in its infancy stage, right? Only three years in. He, he had only been preaching and healing for that short time. And as a teacher, he could have taught his disciples so much more if he prolonged his life another 40 or 50 years. Think of that. Well, that was not the plan. Why? Why was that not the plan? Jesus is more than just a religious teacher, more than just a miracle maker, because more teaching will not fix this world. More teachings and more miracles alone cannot fix this world or fix us, right? Well, he could have easily also led his followers in conquest against the Roman occupation to sit on the throne of David in Zion, which is what almost all the Jewish people wanted of Jesus. It was well within his grasp. He could have done that. He could have led a revolt, but he didn't. Why? 
because even the most pious political leader cannot fix this world. You see, Jesus almost doesn't make any sense to us. He doesn't fit into any typical pattern. If there is no supernatural reality beyond what we see and and feel and experience in life, if there is nothing that comes after death, then what Jesus did here by going to the cross to lay down his life is, well, the conclusion is either he's a lunatic or a liar, as C.S. Lewis famously said. But when we read the teachings of Jesus, nothing from what he taught sounds crazy at all. In fact, it's the highest ethical standard of love and truth that we find. Nothing, he says, seems like this is a mentally unstable person. In fact, we find him over and over again confounding the sharpest and the brightest scholars and authorities of his own day. As much as they tried, they could not trip him up. He was brilliant and compelling. His logic was precise and faultless. He avoided every single trap that they tried to lay for him. And yet, and yet, here is Jesus knowingly entering the trap that would kill him. Why? Why? Well, he was going down to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, the feast day that the Jews celebrated when God had delivered their ancestors from slavery in Egypt, calling them out as, their, as his own children, and lambs would be slain and eaten as a reminder that they had their freedom only at a great cost, the cost of those lambs that were slain in their place. And so Jesus, we find that he knew he was the Lamb of God who had come to take away the sin of the world. He knew that to give his people full and final deliverance from slavery to sin and death, that they needed someone much more than a great teacher or a miracle maker, or a political revolutionary leader. No, they needed a substitutionary sacrifice in their place. And that's why he went. He voluntarily, we find him here, walking the plank for us in love. He knew that his sinless life was the price for our freedom freedom from the law of sin and death. So he was going to Jerusalem to be that spotless sacrifice in order to truly set us free. Paul says in Galatians 4, we read this earlier, when the time came, God sent his son, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. We find, loved ones, that in this account, Jesus was no lunatic no liar. Jesus accomplished his mission with calculated determination, revealing, in fact, that he is the Lord Almighty and also our sacrificial substitute, our Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So we find his calculated determination as a leader. And then the next point is his convicted devotion that we see in verses 36 to 40. This comes out especially when the religious leaders command Jesus to rebuke the people for praising God and blessing him as the Messiah. And in response, we find Jesus say with strong conviction of the truth and devotion to God's glory, I tell you, he replied, if they keep quiet, the stones will cry out. What a great statement in response. Here we find a man, Jesus, who is thoroughly convinced of the truth. 
What that means is that nobody could persuade him otherwise. He is convinced, and yet we find that he is truly devoted to the glory of another, to the glory of his Father God. And those two things are typically not held in common, strong conviction and zealous devotion to glorify God. What I mean is that most people, when they become thoroughly convinced of the truth, they often also become thoroughly full of themselves in a bad way. We've seen this. Perhaps we've seen it in our own hearts at times. Smart and knowledgeable people often feel entitled to more attention and admiration from others. And to this point, the Apostle Paul says, knowledge puffs up. So is the problem knowledge itself? No, knowledge is good, but what is the problem then? It is seeking knowledge that is naked. What do I mean? Well, when people speak the truth without love, they are shamefully parading the truth in nakedness. So in a sense, a person who speaks the truth apart from love is using that truth to advantage themselves, to boost up their own glory and fame. But truth clothed in love lifts up God to be praised and truth to be revered because God is the author of all truth. And that's exactly what we see Jesus doing here, right? We see someone who is strongly committed to the truth, but also we see one who has a devotion to the truth, clothed in love, love for his father and love for his own. We see a man of strong conviction, strong conviction to the truth. We see a man zealous in devotion. And those two things, as I said, are very rare to find together, very rare in our world today. But in Jesus, they fit perfectly and fully. We find majesty and loneliness perfectly combined in Christ. Strength and humility found perfectly in him. Now, now that we consider that, what was Jesus thinking? Let's ask that question. What was he thinking when the people were singing, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord? What truth was he pondering? What truth did he know of? Well, he knew what that verse truly meant in the moment of his arrival. He knew that he was, in fact, the blessed king. And blessed here means full of strength and power and full of joy and life which comes from God. He knew that he was blessed. In Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 28, it speaks of God's old promises of blessing that he promised to the people of Israel under the Mosaic law. And it says, all these blessings will come on you and accompany you if you obey the Lord your God. You will be blessed in the city and blessed in the country. You will be blessed when you come in and blessed when you go out. The Lord will grant that the enemies who rise up against you will be defeated before you. And so it's important for us to remember that the Jewish people when, in Jesus' day, when they speak of blessedness, when they mention that, when they think of it, the Mosaic law framed their understanding of blessedness. And so Jesus, who was born under the law, he is the only one who fully obeyed the law perfectly and faithfully. Therefore, Jesus alone deserved to be blessed of the Father. He alone had claimed to that title as the blessed one. And so he knew that, that that verse spoke very clearly and rightly of himself. 
And yet we know as well that Jesus didn't want to keep that blessedness all to himself. The whole purpose of the Son of God coming was to graciously share that blessedness that he has with sinners like us. And so, too, Jesus also knew that in order to sit upon that throne of David and bless his people, that first he had to remove the curse that hung over his people's head. That was the first order of business. Because what good are blessings for people when they're trapped under the curse of sin and death? You see, the blessed one, Jesus, knew that he had to deal first with the curse in order to rightly give the kingly blessing upon his people. He knew, he knew that the only way he could deal with that curse was dreadfully by becoming a curse in their place, accursed on the cross for them. The blessed king, as he's descending there into Jerusalem, first had to be stripped of all of his own blessings that he enjoyed and suffer in his body and soul the full weight of the curse of sin and death for us before he could sit upon his throne to bless his people with the power of his indestructible life. And that's exactly what Jesus was doing. As the people shouted, blessed is the king, he knew that he would soon be hanged as cursed on the tree. He knew his fate and he knew the cost of love But he did not hold back that blessedness for himself. Instead, he willingly laid it down in order to give it over to us. Jesus was and truly is the blessed king who was a curse for us in order to bless us. May we see him clearly in that way this morning. What else, perhaps, was Jesus thinking? Well, when he heard them say, who comes in the name of the Lord... Well, Jesus knew that he was arriving to the city of David with God the Father's backing, the full support of his Father. Jesus knew that he was Yahweh's true Son, the man to which that Psalm, Psalm 118, most truly refers. Jesus knew that he was the rightful heir to the kingdom of God, the very God who by his Spirit inspired those words before To be written hundreds of years before, Jesus knew who he was, the man of God's choosing, the Son of God incarnate. And surely, Jesus was thinking about the truthfulness of that verse, of that psalm that was quoted and sung on that day as they were singing it aloud. It was precisely the right song to sing, and that was part of God's plan as well. But I don't think that was the only thing that Jesus was thinking about. Not only did Jesus know the truthfulness of God's word, but we also know from Scripture that he knew the true state of every heart, of everyone who was around him. And so he knew in some sense that some of the men and women and children there singing with their whole hearts, well, they were doing it, some of them, perhaps just because their parents were praising them and were there. Or perhaps others were singing because here's a political leader that they were excited about. So they had wrong motives and misunderstandings about Jesus. And sadly, Jesus knew that many of them in that crowd would again yell out and scream with hatred a few days later, crucify him, the same ones. And yet that did not stop him, right? 
It didn't make him turn around. He knew that others truly believed in him and would lack courage and devotion to stand up with him and face death with him. But that didn't stop him either. Not the false religion, not the hateful intent to cancel Jesus, not the half-hearted faith of his own could keep Jesus from loving them until the end, all the way to the point of giving up his final breath to death. In our last Friday night fellowship, we considered John 13, 1, which speaks of this and says, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He loved them to the end. Sinners, friends, see Jesus entering Jerusalem on that day. He knew the hearts of his own, and he still loved them to the end. He didn't turn around then, and he won't turn around from you now. Behold the blessed one who went well knowing how much you have messed up and how spiritually unwell you still are. And he knew, and he didn't go begrudgingly. He didn't go grumbling and complaining to the Father. We never hear Jesus say, Oh God, Father, why did you give me these people? We only always hear Jesus delighting over the ones that the Father has given him, and he loved them, his own, till the end. So we find that Jesus was thoroughly convinced of the truth. He knew the truth of God's word. He knew the truth that was in the hearts of the people there. And he was still devoted to the glory of God and to the good of his own to save them all the way to the end. He was fully persuaded of loving God and loving his own until the end. Now, lastly, in verses 41 to 44, we find Jesus' compassionate disposition. And this part of the account of Luke's telling of this story is striking because we find Jesus wept over the lost people of Jerusalem. This is a very uncommon description of Jesus. We're not exactly used to this. It's not necessarily uncommon in the Bible, but it is uncommon to our self-made versions of Jesus, Uh, in part because in our own culture, it's not very customary or welcome to see men weeping out loud or crying. Well, this is not the Jesus that we tend to imagine in our minds. What is uncommon about Jesus to us that we find here? We find irrefutable evidence right here that Jesus' heart is deeply saddened when people reject God's coming to them. What's the evidence? We find him weeping over the lost souls of Jerusalem. And by reference, we could think of the lost souls of humanity. Jesus' heart was compassionate towards the lost. Their upcoming destruction pained his own heart so much that he wept with tears. Notice, Luke does not say that he got sad and said, no. He doesn't even say that he quietly cried to himself and said, no. Luke says Jesus wept over them and said, among a whole host of other verbs that Luke could have chosen, To refer to sadness, Luke chose wept. In the original Greek of this text, Luke uses the verb klayo, which which we translate into English as weep. And klayo means to cry, wail, lament with any loud expression of pain or sorrow. So this is not a personal sadness. This is a loud public sorrow. 
This is the same verb that was used to describe the professional mourners of that day who were paid to accompany a dead corpse of someone's family who had died to accompany them wailing out loud as they went along the streets to show all the people around the great sadness accompanied the death of this person. And they were paid to do that. Well, Jesus was not paid to weep in this instance. He was not putting on a show. This was real pain, real pain that the Son of God felt for the lost state of the people in Jerusalem. The heavy pain swelled up in his heart and burst out of his mouth with loud cries. He wept over them. May that change your view of Jesus. Not because I'm saying it, but because Luke, inspired by the Spirit, has said that about Jesus. And what does it tell us about his disposition, the disposition of his heart? It tells us that he was and still is deeply compassionate, loving, caring, Since Jesus is the greatest and fullest revelation of who God is, well, we find here a reflection of God's own heart. The rejection of Jesus in a real sense brings great sorrow to God himself. So even though Jesus had his calculated, predetermined plan, we find he is not a cold-hearted leader. No. He is deeply and personally invested in us in humanity. Even though Jesus' knowledge was vast, true, well, his devotion was as well firm and stable. He did not sit in proud judgment over those who rejected the truth. No. Instead, we find that Jesus was able to stick firmly to his plan without wavering at all, firmly committed to the truth, and still with deep compassion for those who hated him and rejected him. We find that Jesus is unlike any other. He is as majestic as a lion and as humble as a lamb, but together in one person. So what have we learned about Jesus this morning? Well, we've seen the calculated plans of Jesus show us his determination to love us until the end. Secondly, we saw how the convicted heart of Christ was so devoted to the glory of God and to our own good. And thirdly, we saw that the compassionate heart of Jesus wept over the lost state of those who rejected him. Friends, Jesus is the leader that our hearts most long for. This is the one that our hearts want to follow deep down. Even if you are still rejecting him, you know in a sense that he is true and he is the one that we must follow. You know, why, as we've been getting to know Jesus a bit more this morning, why do we get to know anybody? Why do we get to know strangers? What for? We get to know them in order to see if we might decide to give part of ourselves over to them in love and loyalty, right? So we get to know strangers, wondering if they might become trustworthy colleagues to partner with in work, or trustworthy, loyal friends or a loving spouse. We get to know them to see if maybe we can give ourselves over to them. And the more that you get to know someone, then the more you either feel secure or insecure about trusting yourself to that person, right? We don't want to give ourselves over to someone in trust who will in the end forsake us. Well, friends, 
The more you learn about Jesus, as we have this morning, well, the more secure you will feel and be to trust in him. Give your whole self over to him because he will never leave you or forsake you. He will love you to the end. As we see, as we saw this last Friday um, night, and we see again this Good Friday service upcoming, and on Easter Sunday, Jesus is that blessed King who has loved us and will love us to the bitter end. Why must we continue to get to know Jesus in and through the Word of God? Why? Well, because each and every one of us, even if we followed him for many years, we still have wrong assumptions and preconceived notions about who he is. And the less we know him as he is, then the less we will trust him. And so the more, by contrast, or the opposite is true, that the more you know him, the more we get to know him, then the more confident we will be to trust and obey him with all that we have and all that we are And so my last question for you is, are you trusting and obeying Jesus in your life right now? Is this a season where you find yourself really trusting and obeying Jesus? And if you aren't, if you aren't doing that enough, well, perhaps it's because you are not seeking to know Jesus in his word enough. You see, he invites us to get to know him more and more so that we would personally entrust our whole selves to him Don't reject him. Go to him. Get to know him. And join us as we continue to study God's word with this aim of knowing Jesus and following his lead until the end. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, again, we come to you, O Christ, and seek your compassionate disposition towards us, sinners. We acknowledge that you had this predetermined plan calculated to the very last detail to save us from our sins, to lay down your life as a sacrifice on our behalf. And we recognize in you the truth. And also by seeing you as you've revealed yourself in your word, our hearts are aligned with that truth more and more that we might as well rightly devote ourselves to honor God above all else, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Lord, work these truths into our heart. Help us. Continue to guide us forward, O Spirit, in the knowledge of Jesus Christ. This we ask in his name. Amen. Loved ones, let us respond to God's word. We'll sing this morning, 288, We Come, O Christ, to You. 288.